0: This morning is our final week, week number 20 in this series from the book of Exodus. And we are going to be in Exodus chapter 19, if you want to turn there in the text. This morning, we are going to see another fulfillment of one of the promises that we heard God give to his people when God called Moses at Mount Sinai, and now here we are following the wilderness days east of Egypt, all that travel that's happened. God is going to fulfill one of the promises he made early on in the book, and we're also going to hear how God summarizes some of the very key lessons, some of the things that God was intending to teach his people through all the events of Exodus leading up to this point. So let's start this morning at the beginning of Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped there in the wilderness. There they encamped Israel before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now, just to set our context here and get us oriented again in the story that we've been walking through, we're looking at the events that take place now just three months after those amazing events of leaving Egypt through the Red Sea. The people have reached this special mountain, what we call Mount Sinai, and they're encamped there. Around it. Over the last few weeks, we looked at some of the highlights of this three month time period between the Red Sea and this encampment at the mountain. That was really the sermon two weeks ago, right? We talked about how the people, just three days after leaving the Red Sea, become bitter because of the lack of fresh water, right? They, they reach an oasis. They think water will be there. The water is bitter, and it shows their distrust of God just overflows out of their sinful hearts, and they complain, and yet God graciously not only exposed that heart issue, that root of sin, but then miraculously provides for them there. Then we saw another event, right, 45 days into the journey, just a month and a half past the the Red Sea. The people are grumbling again against God, his appointed leader, Moses. And God exposes that sin of grumbling in them and miraculously provides for their needs, physical needs of food through quail and manna from heaven. And then very shortly after that, we said, no more than six weeks' time after that point, they're at Rephidim and once again are complaining against God. For the very same thing they were complaining at the beginning, a matter of they didn't find the fresh water that they wanted. They were doubting God was going to give it to them and take care of them. And yet, once again, God miraculously provides for them there. So here we are. After all those events, we are three months out of Egypt, Three months is not a long time. I'm looking back on the summer thinking, where did the months of summer go, right? It just it felt fast. Everyone I talk to says it feels fast. This is just three months for the people of Israel. Not only has it been three months since the Red Sea, but in those three months, they've seen three amazing, mighty displays of God's power and might, and now they are encamped at this special mountain that God had promised he would bring them to, fulfilling another one of these great things God has said. This arrival to this mountain was not just another stop, was not just part of the journey. This here was a clear, direct fulfillment of God's promise to Moses. Remember, when God called Moses from the burning bush, he said, there will be several signs that I give you to prove I am, I'm Yahweh, I'm truthful, I never change, I will fulfill everything I've said. There are some signs that you will see, and one of them was that God would lead the people back to this very mountain, and they would worship him there. That was the promise of Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Moses said to God, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. And so there they are. (laughs) Again, God says something will happen and God makes it. Happen. The people are standing in the very place that God said they would reach, encamped at this mountain to remind them again. God always does exactly what He says He will do. God prophetically promised to bring the people here, and He did. So now, from this place, this special mountain where before God had spoken to Moses from a burning bush, now God calls out to Moses from the mountaintop. Look at verses 3 to 6. Yahweh called out to Moses to the people of Israel. Now, this is a pretty incredible text, and I want us to see here what God is saying to the people of Israel and how it speaks to us as well, because I think what we find here is a little bit of a summary of some of these key ideas that I'm hoping we've drawn from the Exodus events over the last 20 weeks as we've been in this series together. And these things, I think, apply very much to our lives today. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is this, God wants his people to remember what he has done. Now, I say this often because I believe this is one of the most important commands we're given in the Bible, the most important truths that's presented all throughout the Bible that we fail at as Christians today, over and over and over again. We are so prone to forget God in the midst of our daily lives. We forget all the times of faithfulness that we have seen in God, all the many answered prayers that we have prayed and he has answered, all of the small, normal gifts that God has graciously bestowed upon us, they are so quickly forgotten from our minds. We often live, I think, as faith amnesiacs. We hit rough moments, we face challenges, We get bad news, we step into a season or a place of pain or discomfort or disappointment, and what do we do? Instead of living the life of faith, we turn inward. We look to ourselves, to our own power, our own strength, our own abilities to try and get us out of these things, or we look outward to the tools and techniques or people around us as if they could be the ones to deliver us. Instead of doing what faith tells us, faith says don't look inward, don't look outward, look upward Look upward to the God who has done incredible things. And yet so often we forget who he is because we forget what he's done. He is gracious. God is capable in every situation. He is loving. He is always faithful. And yet so often we forget all of those things about who God is because we forgot all that God has actually done. We begin to worry and doubt and act in distrust, just like the people of Israel kept doing time and time again, even over, like I just said, those three months of time where they saw three miracles take place. Yet time after time after time, they kept forgetting who God is because they forgot what God had done. Everything leading up to this point in Exodus should have built up great confidence in God, but they forgot all those things the moment things got difficult. And you and I do that same exact thing today. God tells the people of Israel, he tells us through the whole entirety of Scripture, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember the things I have said. Do not forget. In this text, he tells them, you have seen and experienced My delivering power, I have, he says, borne them on eagle's wings and brought them to himself. They've experienced personally these great acts of deliverance and mercy. He tells them, remember not only what I've done to you, the grace and mercy and deliverance I've done to you, remember how I've handled your enemies, the the people you were afraid of, the things that caused fear in you. Remember how I took care of Egypt's armies and Pharaoh? They're dead at the Red Sea. You've seen, he tells them, what I have done to the Egyptians. You and I today, we need to be people who remember what God has done. Broadly in history, no matter if you think you like history or not, as a Christian you are called to remember the acts of God in history. And in your life personally. Because he's not just the God who worked on the pages of scripture. He's not just the God who worked in the 1500s with the great figures that we know from church history. He's the God at work today, and you have a history of his faithfulness at work in your life, you must remember these things every single day. Really, there's not to be a day that goes by in any one of our lives where we are not thinking about God, and we're not thinking about what God has done. If we are truly his, and he is truly who he says he is, then he demands that we think of him every single day. Not a day should go by where we don't think of the gospel message. We don't think of how serious our sinfulness is, the sinfulness that's exposed out of us every single day and reminding ourselves that that sinfulness that's in us has been dealt with by Jesus at the cross, that he has been overwhelmingly kind to us more times than we could ever count. How we have personally seen his faithfulness and steadfastness sustain us through the difficulties we faced, and every one of us in this room have faced difficulties. So like I've often said, and I will often say, because I do think we are faith amnesiacs, we forget this far too quickly. The first thing you have to do if you want to live wisely, if you want to live a life of faith, is you must know who God is, what God has done, and what God has said. We have to be people who stop just living in the here and now, which is easy for many of us to just live in the here and now and what's going on in these moments, or to live in the anxiety and worry of the future and speculation of what may come. That's where most of us live, here and now, or worried about tomorrow, but God says live in the moment, aware of the past, trusting me with the future. We must remember who God is, what God has said, what God has done. My hope, my prayer really has been throughout the 20 weeks of this sermon series, walking through all the text of Exodus up to this point, is that you would be built up in your desire and your ability to remember these great acts of God. That they would stir up your heart. They would be more deeply rooted in your mind so that you are more prepared for the here and now and the future with great confidence because of what you've learned about God's work in the past. That's been the goal of this series. But the second thing we see from this text here is this. God commands his people to listen and obey his words. Now that might sound elementary because I say this often. You've heard this often if you've been in church for any amount of time. Of course, we're lit to listen to and obey the words of God. But I think we have to hear this over and over and over again because acknowledging that we are to be intentional in obeying and understanding the words of God is not the same thing as actually understanding and obeying the words of God practically. And I will tell you over and over and over again until we're all dead and in heaven and this isn't true of us anymore, God is not fooled by the external, exterior things you put out. If you just try to look good on the outside but have a heart far from him, he's not tricked by that. You you can't just look like you're obedient to the word of God when you're really not. That's not enough. That's not the Christian life. To really be obedient to God requires us to know what God says, which means you have to be in the word of God because it's here that God speaks to us. If you want to live a life of faith, you have got to know the word of God. It's not negotiable. It's amazing to me I, I read the statistics. I actually talked to some, some people here in our own church family, and they've said, yeah, this is true of me too. And I, I, it's hard for me to comprehend, but the, the statistics tell most people don't read anymore. Like, there are people who will go ten year, after 10 years after high school, they'll report, haven't read a single book. Really? <laughs> like, that's hard for me. I read eight books last month. <laughs> I love to read. That's just, that's part of who I am. That's the way I'm wired. So when I hear people don't read, I'm like, I... I That feels foreign to me, but but that's that's personality, and I get some of that. But people who say, oh, I love God, but I never read his word, that has nothing to do with personality. That has everything to do with obedience. This is God speaking to you, and if you're not reading his words to you, you're living disobedient to God. And that's not a posture a Christian can maintain for any amount of time. This is where God speaks to us. And if we're commanded to listen to God's words and obey God's words, you have to be in the Scripture. You're not going to hear God speak to you through the news, through blogs, through YouTube channels, through Facebook rants, through Instagram photos. That's not where God speaks. He speaks here, in the Word. So we have to be people who engage in the Scriptures regularly and then not only engage in the Scriptures, but then live out what the Scriptures tell us to do. We have to take that second step. You can't just vaguely, generally know... I think God says something about that, or I actually know what God says about that, and then go do something different. God says, you must know what I say, and you must obey what I say. So again, we're like, yeah, of course. Of course, we we'll must obey what God says. Okay, so practically, here are some examples of things God says. And we don't need a show of hands. We did that last week with the kids. I won't do that to us here today. Here are some things God tells each one of us as Christians. You examine your heart. How well are you doing in obeying these? God tells each of us, have no other God before him. Nothing more important in your life than him. Not family, not TV, not your job, not your hobby. Nothing should be before him. God tells us, do not lie to one another. Oh, why'd you pick that one, Pastor? Why? Because we're all a bunch of liars. (laughs) (laughs) You know it. You've lied this week on something, I guarantee it. He says, do not lie to one another. God tells us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He tells us to be people who are forgiving one another. How many of you can think of someone right now, you are not forgiving? He tells us to be people who put to death what is earthly within us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, kill those things. Don't play with them, don't try to manage them, try to hide them, put to death. Now these are just a few commands that God gives us, but I guarantee each and every one of us in this room are falling short of obeying these commands. Christianity is not a passive religion. This is not the type of thing where you get your membership card, stick it in your wallet, and then you move on. (laughs) doesn't really have any impact in your day-to-day life. It's there if you need it. You can pull it out when it's time, but you know, we got other things to worry about. No, true Christianity is coming under the lordship of God in every area of your life, living in obedience and faith and pursuit of him in everything that you do. It demands everything of us. When God spoke here in Exodus time and time and time again, we pointed this out throughout the whole series. He proved over and over and over again his words are always true and always right. He's never wrong, he never fails to do anything that he says he will do. And so he proves himself reliable, proves himself trustworthy, proves that he should be obeyed. And in 20 weeks of this series, again, my hope and my prayer has been that you have learned to have greater confidence in the word of God and you now desire to listen to him and obey him. Because those who obeyed him, what what happened with Israel versus what happened to Egypt? Right? We've seen the consequence of disobeying God Played out in vivid detail in this great story. It should be a warning to each one of us. The third thing that I think this text gives us is one of the most amazing and incredible statements that I think we could find in the Bible. God says to his people here that they are his treasured possession. (laughs) What a profoundly powerful thing to have God Almighty say about his people. Look at that, Exodus 19, verse 5. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. uh, We should read that and just marvel at this declaration that God makes here. This tells us, as we have seen throughout the book of Exodus, again, this is a summary of all these things we have seen, explanation of all these things we have seen. God is not a distant, stoic, uncaring, far-off deity who just deals with humanity in kind of generalities or abstractions. God doesn't look at humanity, as some that I, I have read claim, as if we're just in buckets or generalized categories. God just kind of looks and sees, okay, that's my people here, that's uh, not my people over here, and that's kind of the view he has of humanity. That's not the view the Bible gives us of how God looks at us. He doesn't see groupings like that. You know those little characters? I was thinking about these little characters in uh, Risk. Anybody ever played Risk or one of I's favorite games called Memoir 44. I know Jason and Mac know that game. You get these little bitty characters, and they're all they're all the same. They're different colors, right, for your different groups, but, but all the little infantry guys look exactly the same. And so you put them out on the board, and all that really matters is how many of them you have in an area. Doesn't matter if you take this one and put them over there and put a different one in the spot, right? They're all the same, you just, Just all that matters is how many you've got. That's not how God looks at us. He doesn't just have a grouping of, here's my people, how many are in there? Yep, numbers are good, okay. How many are not my people? That's sad over there. He doesn't look at us that way. He looks at us personally. He knows us personally. You're not just a number. You're not just part of a collective. You are one of his treasured possessions. Time and time again in the book of Exodus, we saw God knows his people on a very personal level and he deals with them very particularly, Right? He shows love and mercy and protection and provision and forgives them over and over and over again because he knows them, even in the midst of all the plagues going on all around them. He knows exactly where all of his people are and protects and cares for every single one of them, right? He knows his people personally, and that's true in the book of Exodus, and it's true in our lives today. And since that's true, that should be a marvelous, life-altering reality for us to live as a treasured possession of God Almighty. He doesn't just have an awareness of your existence. He isn't just uh, knowledgeable of the highlights of your life. He doesn't just get a summary or a briefing on the generalities of our stories as they're unfolding. He knows you personally. He knows your name. He knows your moment-by-moment location. He knows your desires, your needs, your feelings, your wants. He hears everything you say. He's aware of every thought you think. He knows every feeling that you have. He's this personal. He has more than just knowledge. He is with you and knows you fully, personally, particularly. And for his people, the text says he delights in us. He treasures us. Knowing us. Being with us, hearing us pray, opening our hearts and minds to understand the word and hear him speak when we ask him to do that. As we offer up our worship and our praise through songs, through obedience to his commands, living those things out, being part of proclaiming his gospel. When we do all of those things, he's with us and he delights in us in all of that. He calls us his treasured possessions. Right? Like the thing you're proud of, right? The thing you want to show off when someone comes over. Not the thing that you've got that gets in a box in the attic and your kids are going to have to throw it away because it's a piece of junk, but you kept it. It's your possession. Not that kind of possession. Treasured possessions, the things that make the shelf, right? That's a radical definition of how God relates to his people. And then we're called look at the first half of verse 6 there. We're called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that phrase is probably familiar to you, not so much because God says it to Israel encamped on the Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, probably because Peter applies it to the church in his letter in 1 Peter chapter two. where Peter tells us, "You, church, Christians today, living in, in that first century and then all beyond to right now, says to us, "You are a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Israel was God's chosen people in the old covenant era. They were chosen to be holy. They were chosen to be set apart. They were chosen to be used by God to bring the Messiah into the world, to deliver the entire world from sin but Israel was only a foreshadow of the church. As I said last week, you and I were part of the story of God that's unfolding, but we're part of a greater story than Moses and Israel could have ever imagined in their day. We're part of how God saves, not just from slavery to nations. We're part of the story of how God saves from slavery to sin. So listen again, Peter says, you, Each one of us in this room, Nelsonville Assembly, Christians gathering here today in 2021, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That you may declare the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This heart of this transforming message that changes lives like our lives in this room is because God has mercy on those who come to him in faith. Every one of us in this room have some major differences in our lives things that would set us apart from one another, put us on different paths from one another, different lifestyles from one another, right? We have different interests. We have different hobbies. We have different priorities about how we want to use our money and our time. All these differences that are some big, some small between us, but the thing that binds us all together to come into this place week after week after week is the mercy of God. Has been at work in your life and my life and changed us from just a people, from different people groups to now be the people of God that have been chosen by him, been adopted into his royal family, made sons and daughters of the true king who are declared and being transformed into holy people like our God, people who are his treasured possessions. That truth should be radically reshaping of how you and I live our life. If that's true of us, it should change the things we go about doing tomorrow morning or at least how we go about doing them tomorrow morning. It should produce responses in us to want to live lives that are oriented fully around these truths that we get from Exodus nineteen three to 6. We should be people who delight daily to remember what our God has done. We should be people who love to listen to and obey our God's words. And we should be people who marvel and worship the one who would call us his precious possessions. These people in Israel arrive at Mount Sinai all those years ago. And they hear God speak to them there at the mountainside through Moses. And they realize if these things are all true, if these things all have weight to them, that demands a response. And so they give a response to God. We'll read through the last 13 verses here where we'll leave the book of Exodus. Next is chapter 19, verses 7 to 11. Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, them before, set before them the words that Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses repeated the words of the people to Yahweh. And when Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Now go to the people and consecrate them tomorrow, today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So the people understand if if God speaks and he's true and he has these things he expects of us, we must obey him, we must respond. And so they they do, they commit themselves. We'll be a people who remember the acts of God that we have heard of and that we have experienced. We will listen to the words of God and we will obey him and we will follow his ways and we will live in light of this declaration of being his people, his treasured possessions. That's what they're committing themselves to. And so Yahweh says, okay, prepare yourself for them. To see me in my glory, and my power, and my holiness, as I descend upon the mountain in three days' time. They go to prepare, to consecrate, to purify themselves over this period. And then we read in verses 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up from it like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to come to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. I went back and forth on the title and how I wanted to conclude this message and this series today. On the one hand, I think what we just talked about a moment ago, this declaration that God would call his people his treasured possession is really so profound and so incredible that, that that's where we should end. That's where we should kind of draw the focus. But then I realized and I felt convicted to get through the rest of these few verses here because the reality is God calling us his treasured possession really only makes sense if we understand more fully who God is. And so we need this picture, this reality of God being this glorious, powerful, and merciful God that we find here on the mountain at Sinai. So we're ending the series, this narrative that we've walked through for all these weeks with the people arriving at the mountain, standing before God and getting to witness this incredible display of God himself coming down upon the mountain. And I want us to keep that in mind as we respond to God today and interact with that same God here in just a few moments. See, the people in the verses we didn't read were told to take very great care that even though they had consecrated themselves and purified themselves for three days, they were not to touch the mountain. They could not get close to the presence of God on that mountain or they would die because even after three days of preparation, they weren't clean, they weren't holy. The presence and the power of God, who God really is, is so much bigger than so many people think today. There's a much lower, a much smaller view of God that is the popular view of God that exists in our culture. But this passage reveals to us that when God comes, his presence is manifest in this particular way. His power is so great, his transcendence and glory are so overwhelming. He's so much bigger and so far more glorious than people today might assume. His presence is so overwhelming that there is no casual response that can be allowed. The moment here at Exodus was not a glib moment. It wasn't a familiar moment. It wasn't just, wow, that's pretty cool. What do you think about that? No, you know, there was, no, there was nobody in that moment who was not overwhelmed. By the reality of the presence of God before them. Any encounter with the living God should not be a casual moment for us. Because God, the God that reveals Himself all throughout the book of Exodus here, He's not just our buddy. He's not just some benevolent power source. He's not just someone who deserves a couple hours a week of focus from us, but then you know we can leave him here and go on do our own thing. This God who's been revealing himself throughout the Book of Exodus, and then here in this amazing powerful moment of descension upon the mountain there at Sinai, He is the one true God who is so glorious and so powerful, the most powerful being that exists, the one who can cause lightning to leap, the one who causes thunder to roar, the one who can cause the clouds to gather as he wills, the one who causes mountains to shake fires to rage, darkness to flee, light to enter. He is the God who all other powers have to bow down before. There's no one like him. There's no one that compares to him in any way. He is the ruler of every moment. He is the sovereign over every life. He is the giver and sustainer of every breath and thought of all of creation. He's the one Lord, the real king, the only living, true God. And the people become aware of that when his presence descends upon the mountain in front of them. It is truly awesome. And I don't mean awesome the way the 90s started to use awesome, right? Everything's awesome. The pizza's awesome. The car's awesome, right? Everything's awesome. No, awe-inspiring, worship-producing. That's awesome. That's what they experience there. And so what we need to see, what we desperately need to have in our view of God, what I hope has developed and grown more and more each week throughout the book of Exodus over these 20 weeks, is that you and I would have the right view of God. A big view of God's holiness and glory and power. A view that is awe and worship and submissive response, not careless careless casualty. That's what marks our culture today casualness about everything, everywhere we go and everything we do. That should not be how we interact with our God. We must understand who God is and how he's revealed himself throughout the book of Exodus. He's the one who proved himself greater than every idol of Egypt. He is the one who showed he has power over Egypt's armies and Pharaoh and destroyed them at his command. He is the one who has sovereignty over all creation. He is the glorious and great God who must not be taken lightly. So we need to grasp that that is true of who God is, and that makes demands then upon us and how we live upon those of us who confess to follow this God. He's so glorious that we must be people who would lay down everything to worship him at all times in all things who would go after that sinfulness, that rebellion, that's offensiveness in us towards him, we would go and put those things to death instead of trying to put God in a box somewhere else and we'll go back to him when we're ready. Who God is makes demands upon our entire life. And I hope you've seen that through the book of Exodus. Worship team, if you'll come this morning, I want us to take just a few moments as they're gonna sing over us this song that we did uh, last week, when Travis was here, I want us to examine our own lives this morning and deal with these questions. I want you to ask yourself do you daily delight to remember what God has done? Do you love to listen to and obey God's words? Do you marvel and worship the one who calls his people precious possessions? If the answer is no to any or to all of those in some way, then this is the moment to to lay down that sinfulness and come to the God who's not only so glorious and merciful and great, but the God who's so kind to you and I that unlike the people of Israel who could not get close to the presence of God, he actually enters into this place and this moment, into your life to meet with you, to hear your prayers personally, to change your heart specifically. You don't need a mediator. Moses had to go up to the mountain. That's where we leave him. He's on the mountain. The people in the presence of God, the people are down in the valley waiting. You and I in these next few moments can go personally together into the presence of God. This time of prayer, this time of response is not just a thing to do at the end of the service. It's a chance for you to meet with the one true living God. God calls you, if you're a Christian today, calls you his treasured possession, whom he delights in. And if you're not a Christian today, what are you waiting for? Think about what God did to Egypt, to those who never submitted, those who never bowed down, never, never turned and recognized who God really is. He, he destroyed them. He judged them for their sins. He will do the same to us. But if we come to him in faith, if we turn to Jesus, we rely upon him, not upon our goodness, not upon our abilities, not upon anything in us, if we look to Jesus, look up to the cross of Jesus Christ, we find mercy and grace for every sin. Let's respond to him this morning. God, we do humble ourselves before you knowing that you are so great and glorious. And recognizing that this morning we have this incredible privilege of entering into your presence and ourselves offering our prayers and opening our hearts to you, the one who knows us so truly and fully and extends such great mercy and grace as we ask for it. Lord, I I pray that you would help each one of us, Lord, to take the things that we've heard you say to us through the scriptures over all of these last weeks, Lord, and you would push them in the deep into our souls, into our minds, that they would change how we live in our lives. Starting now, starting the moment we walk out these doors, Lord, may may we be people who are different than the people who walked into this place. We thank you for your love and your grace and your power and your mercy. And Lord, we ask that you would help us be aware of that, not just in these moments in this place, but in everything we do, in every part of our life. It's in your beautiful, powerful name that we pray, Lord Jesus. everyone said? Amen. Amen. Amen.